Good morning again. I tell you, during the scripture reading, I almost made an impromptu audible and just decided to preach Revelation 5. We'll do that next year, Lord willing. On this Resurrection Sunday, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 11, where we'll be looking primarily at verses 17 to 27. John chapter 11, verses 17 to 27. As you're turning there, <clears throat> excuse me, you'll notice this is a well-known scene from the life of the Lord Jesus. It's the raising of Lazarus. We won't cover the entire chapter today, so perhaps a summary would serve us well as we begin. You'll remember that Lazarus has fallen ill, but surprisingly, Jesus didn't go to his friend immediately. In fact, Jesus waits several days and he waits on purpose. And when Jesus does finally come, it seems that He's too late. Lazarus has died. So Jesus is left to join the family in their grief. And indeed, Jesus does grieve. In what is one of the most moving moments in the Gospel account, Jesus weeps at the tomb of His friend. The chapter, however, does not end with Jesus' tears. In what is then one of the most powerful moments in John's Gospel, Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And incredibly, the dead man responds to him. Jesus' command proves effective, and Lazarus, freed from death's tyranny, walks out of the grave. You see, it's the climactic sign of Jesus' earthly ministry, and it's one that prepares us for Jesus' own resurrection. For our time this morning, we're going to zero in on verses 17 to 27, where Lazarus' sister Martha comes out to meet Jesus. Now, you might be asking yourself, why focus on just this one short conversation for Easter Sunday? Well, because it's here in conversation with Martha that Jesus declares Himself to be the resurrection and the life. What better way then to spend Easter Sunday than in consideration of the One who is Himself the resurrection? So let's give our attention now to God's Word, beginning in verse 17. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through the Apostle John. Now when Jesus came, He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews who had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met Him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we are beyond grateful that there is good news to celebrate, not only on this Resurrection Sunday, but on every single day. We pray now, God, that you would give us ears to hear 
and a heart to believe the good news concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, keep me from error and grant your people discernment and help us, God, to hear the word with faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God's word puts one question before us this Resurrection Sunday. It's the question Jesus poses to Martha in verse 26. Do you believe this? Every other question pales in comparison to this one. Do you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the fully divine Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus came to give life to those dead in their sins? Do you believe that one day, every person who has ever lived will be raised up to stand before this same man who looked in Martha's grief-stricken face and asked the simple but pressing question, do you believe this? Now, as I put that question before us this morning, some of you were thinking, well, of course I believe this, Jeff. It's why I'm here today, because it's Easter, and Jesus is alive. Of course I believe this. To which I would say, amen and amen. Jesus is alive, and we've gathered together this morning in the confidence of that unshakable truth. Even so, it's good for those of us who believe to hear once more this pressing question, do you believe this? It's good to be reminded that Jesus asks you today not do you assent to this, but do you believe this? Do you bank your life on this? Do you have this as the foundation of your hope that with Jesus and only with Jesus is there everlasting life? So this may be your 10th or your 20th or your 30th Resurrection Sunday, but still, it's good for you to be here and to hear this Gospel truth again. Do you believe this? Or perhaps you're here this morning and as God's Word asks the question, Do you believe this? You're thinking to yourself, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. It all seems so fanciful to me that God would become man and die only to rise again after three days. I don't know if I believe that, and I'm not sure that I can believe such a thing. If that's you this morning, then allow me to say that we're glad that you're here. Perhaps no one has ever told you this before, but God isn't actually frustrated by your questions. In fact, this is the best place for you to be because God's Word holds out to you this morning the one thing you need to find certainty and then saving faith. What is that one thing? Well, to put it plainly, friends, it is the Lord Jesus Himself. You see, this is what people often miss in all of the questions that they ask. They're looking for evidence. They're looking for answers. But what they need to see is the reality of Jesus Himself. So as you listen to God's Word today, if you're not sure that you believe, or if you don't know that you can believe, as you listen to God's Word today, I would ask you to do this. Put all the other questions aside, just for 35 minutes or so, put all the other questions aside, and simply listen to the claims that Jesus makes about Himself. I can't answer all of your questions, friends. And guess what? You can't answer them either. There's only one way to find faith in Christ, and that is through God's Word. 
So you may not know what you think. You may not know whether or not you can believe. But still, it's good that you're here. For faith comes only through hearing the Word of God. As we said just a moment ago, verse 26 puts before us the one question Scripture would have us to consider. Do you believe this? But what is so helpful about this passage is that Jesus does not simply drop the question on us out of nowhere. The question is essential, but it doesn't come to us in a vacuum. It comes in the context of Jesus' conversation with Martha, who, remember, has just lost her brother to death. We shouldn't miss this point, friends. We, we shouldn't forget that Jesus' ministry took place in this actual world, this real world, a world that is so often full of grief. You see, the gospel does not paper over the hardships of life. No, the gospel confronts the realities of life head on, and it does so in a way that gives hope. And that's what Jesus does here. He doesn't just drop the question on Martha. He's not an apologetics professor that's trying to trap people. He meets her first in her grief, And then in the heartache of her loss, Jesus gives her the one thing she needs. He gives her a solid foundation for her faith. Specifically, Jesus' message to Martha is built on three truths. And when taken together, these truths enable us to faithfully answer the question of verse 26, do you believe this? The first truth rises from the back and forth that opens the conversation. With mercy, Jesus points His people to Himself. With mercy, Jesus points His people to Himself. Verse 17 is a stark reminder of the gravity of the situation. By the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus has been dead for four days. In other other words, there's no mistaking it. You you can't fake whatever is about to happen. Lazarus is truly dead. Which means his sisters are confined to their grief. It was customary for family members to sit at home and to receive those who would come to mourn. But when Martha hears that Jesus has finally come, she breaks the custom. Verse 20 tells us that Martha went out to meet Jesus and her conversation with the Master reveals a sad mixture of disappointment and confidence. The disappointment is seen in verse 21 where Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, Martha knows Jesus' ministry. She knows He has calmed storms, healed the sick, and fed the multitude. She knows that one single illness would have been no match for Jesus. But Jesus didn't come. And Martha expresses her disappointment with with this sharp statement. In the midst of that disappointment though, Martha also expresses some level of confidence. Notice verse 22. But even now, she says, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Again, Martha knows Jesus' ministry. She knows He has a unique relationship with God. Whatever Jesus asks, God will do. So you can hear Martha's implied point, can't you? She's urging Jesus, ask God to raise my brother. Ask God to raise him up again and it will be done. We shouldn't take this as full-blown faith, but it is confidence, nonetheless, that confidence that even now, after four days, Jesus can do something about this. Jesus, for His part, responds in a masterful way 
that exposes Martha's heart and then takes her deeper to the truth. Notice what Jesus says, verse 23. Your brother will rise again. That's a staggering statement considering what it claims, but it's also quite vague. There's no indication of when or how. It's purposefully ambiguous. And Martha picks up on the ambiguity. Notice her response in verse 24. She says to Jesus, I know that He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You see, Martha is thinking in the abstract. Martha is thinking just on the level of orthodox doctrine. She believes that Jesus is simply repeating the Old Testament teaching on the final resurrection. And probably with that same kind of tinge of disappointment, Martha reminds Jesus that she affirms that doctrine. She holds to this orthodox belief. But that's precisely Martha's problem. She affirms the truth while missing the point. Or we might say, she asks for God's power while missing God's presence standing there in front of her. Now comes the key moment. What will Jesus do? What will He do? Will He chide Martha for her dullness? Will He rebuke her for only focusing on what she wants? What will Jesus do to her? Well, notice verse 25. With mercy, Jesus points her to Himself. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Friends, please don't miss the depth of Jesus' claim. He is not saying He has the power of resurrection. He is not saying He is the cause of the resurrection. Both of those statements are true, but they are incomplete. Rather, Jesus says He is the resurrection. The resurrection is not merely an event. Resurrection is not simply an action that God performs. Resurrection is not an individual specific point of orthodox doctrine. Rather, the resurrection is personally bound up in Jesus Himself. He is the resurrection and the life. Understand, friends, this is a clear claim of divinity from Jesus' own mouth. If you doubt whether or not Jesus believed Himself to be God, this should be enough. This is a clear claim. There is no way around it. And you've got to abuse the text in all sorts of ways to avoid it. In the biblical worldview, God is the source of all life. Everything that exists receives its existence from the living God. In God, we live and move and have our being. So when Jesus says He is the resurrection and the life, He is clearly claiming to be divine. He is positioning Himself as equal with God. You see, this is why Jesus can make such a profound claim in the first place. Because He is God in the flesh. If He is not God, then He's committing blasphemy. But He is God, and therefore He's telling the truth. In the exchange then with Martha, this puts Jesus squarely in the focus. Not death, not the grave, not life, Jesus. Are you looking for life beyond the grave? Then you must look to Jesus. So do you see what Jesus has done here, friends? He has taken Martha beyond merely assenting to the truth, and He has called her to personal trust in who He is. She affirmed right doctrine, and He said, that's not enough. You have to come to Me. 
Understand, friends, this is the move that you must make in order to be a follower of Christ. You must press beyond agreement with abstract ideas. And you have to personally take hold of the One who is the resurrection and the life. This is the move that you must make. Until you do that, you do not know Christ in a saving way. There are countless numbers of people who say along with Martha, yes, I believe in the idea of resurrection on the last day. I believe there's a God. I believe there's life after death. I believe in a heaven and a hell. There are countless numbers of people who affirm those ideas, but in merely assenting to those ideas, they miss the point. They miss Jesus. Friends, this is why I say this encounter begins with mercy. Mercifully, Jesus meets Martha in her grief. He listens to her disappointment. He listens to her rebuke of Him. He hears her shallow assent, but He doesn't leave her there. He doesn't leave her there. Mercifully, Jesus looks into Martha's tear-stained face and He points her to Himself. So which response is true of your life, friends? Remember, God's Word always demands a response from you. Anytime you hear God's Word, it demands a response. So which response is true for you? Are you merely assenting to ideas and agreeing with correct doctrinal formations? Do you simply affirm things like there is a God, there is a heaven, there is a hell? Do you affirm? I went to church my whole life. I believe these things. I'm not an atheist. I believe there's a God. Do you just affirm bland doctrinal points? Or are you personally looking to Jesus who alone can provide what you need? Merely assenting to the truth is not enough, friends. But mercifully, Jesus does not leave us there. Like He did with Martha here in John 11, Jesus comes to us in His Word and He points us not to abstractions, but to Himself. Even so, this issue of response does press us further into the text. If Jesus points us to Himself, how exactly should we respond? How can we go beyond merely assenting to grasping the Lord Jesus? How do we do that? That's where our second truth comes in. And it's essential. Through faith, Jesus unites His people to Himself. Through faith, Jesus unites His people to Himself. Now, if the first half of verse 25 is profound for its depth, then the second half is profound for its simplicity. Jesus goes on to explain the right response, and it's so beautifully clear, you almost read right past it. So notice again what Jesus says at the end of verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Friends, this is a great example of where it helps to notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, whoever understands me shall live and never die. Understanding is critical, but that's not what Jesus says. He does not say, whoever follows my example shall live 
and never die. It's good to imitate Christ, but again, that's not what Jesus says. He does not say whoever serves me, or whoever gives money to my cause, or whoever does good deeds shall live and never die. And He doesn't say whoever has powerful spiritual experiences and sees visions shall live and never die. Understanding, imitation, service, experience, none of those get Jesus' attention. None of them. No, with striking simplicity, Jesus says, whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. You see, it's faith in Jesus Christ and faith alone that ties the sinner to the Savior. And yet, why exactly does Jesus call for faith? Why not imitation? Wouldn't it be good to have a whole host of people just imitating Jesus everywhere? Why doesn't Jesus call for imitation? Why doesn't He call for service? Why doesn't He say these things? Why does He call for faith? What is it about faith that connects the believer with the resurrection and the life in Christ? Well, there are two answers. And both of them are vital for a right understanding of saving faith. First of all, faith at its core is an expression of dependence upon Christ. Faith is dependence upon Christ. When I place my trust in Jesus, I'm confessing my inability to do anything to help myself. That's what faith is, friends. It's a loud boasting, I can do nothing to save myself. I am entirely dependent on someone else. You see, this is the point where most popular ideas of faith go off the rails. Faith is not a work that we must do in order to bring ourselves to Jesus. But oftentimes, that's just how faith is described. Faith is that final step in getting saved that I have to do. So we're drowning in sin, and Jesus has thrown out that life preserver, but my faith is what it takes to grab onto it and then pull myself in to Jesus. Friends, that's not saving faith according to the Bible. Faith is not a work that we do in order to reel ourselves in to Jesus. Rather, faith is the confession that we cannot do any such work. Jesus can throw out a million life preservers. I'm not grabbing any of them. This is saving faith. To confess that I am utterly dependent on Jesus to do for me what I do not have in me. Faith is dependence upon Christ. Along with that, faith is also confidence in Christ. By trusting in Jesus, I'm confessing my confidence that He will do exactly what He's promised. Again, we see the contrast here with what often passes as faith. It's common to hear people talk about faith as akin to a blind leap into the nothingness. Of course you can't know for sure that there's anything out there, but you've just got to believe. You've just got to go for it. No, friends, that is not saving faith according to the Bible. According to the Scriptures, faith is confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith brings with it a deep certainty that everything Scripture promises, Christ accomplishes without fail. And I'm certain of that. 
That's not to say true faith is immune to doubt. Even the stoutest Christian has seasons of doubt. But it is to say that saving faith always circles back to a rock-solid reality that Jesus lived, He died, He rose again, and He's coming back to gather me to Himself. So not only does faith confess my utter dependence upon Christ, it also confesses my absolute confidence in Christ. I trust and I am certain that Jesus will do exactly what He's promised. Now when you step back for a moment and put these things together, you can see more clearly why Jesus emphasizes faith in Him as the only response. It's because faith claims nothing for itself but puts the spotlight entirely on the Lord Jesus Christ. Or to say it another way, faith gives to Christ what rightfully belongs to Him. All the glory in the salvation of sinners. Faith gives Jesus His due. So if you've come to this service today feeling the weight of your own weakness, if you have walked in this morning knowing very keenly your own inability, then I have good news for you. Those realizations can, by God's grace, be an encouragement to faith in Christ. In some sense, every Christian testimony begins at precisely this point with the recognition that I have nothing and therefore Christ must do everything. What's more, I would contend with you that most seasons of Christian growth also begin right here with a dependent confidence on the Lord Jesus to do what He's promised. As Christians in America, we try at all costs to avoid weakness when Jesus is saying weakness is the way that you grow. Embracing your inability is the way that you grow. So whether you are a weary Christian or a wondering unbeliever, God's Word is calling to you for the same response. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then recognize, friends, that when we trust in the Lord Jesus, amazingly, what Christ gives us is nothing less than Himself. Look again at verse 25 and notice the connection between who Jesus is and what He provides to His people. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. So who is Jesus according to the text? He is the resurrection and the life. And what happens when people trust Him? They too are resurrected from the dead and live with Jesus. You see the connection, friends? What is true of Jesus, resurrection and the life, is now true of His people, resurrected and living. Jesus gives us Himself. He gives us Himself. Nothing, not even physical death, can break this union between Christ and His people. My friends, this is the great miracle of salvation. This is the unspeakable good news of the Gospel. That God would so unite us with Christ that nothing could ever sever us from the life that is in Him. In fact, this is the biblical definition of salvation. It is union with Christ by faith. Union with Christ by faith so that what is true of the Lord Jesus is now true of His people. He is the resurrection, so He raises you up. He is the life, so you will live forever with Him. 
Brothers and sisters, I don't know of another truth as sweet as this, that salvation is a union with Jesus Himself by faith. If your heart is cold on this Resurrection Sunday, then just pause here for a moment and consider that in the Gospel, Jesus has not merely changed your status. He has not simply altered your destination. Jesus has given you Himself. And if all things belong to Jesus, which they do, then all things are yours in Him. He is the resurrection and the life. And through faith, He now shares all that He is with you. Do you need encouragement today, brothers and sisters? I do. Do you need something to warm the soul and stir your heart out of the depths? In some sense, I dread every Resurrection Sunday because I don't feel all that different. Do you need something to stir your heart out of the depths? Then let this truth sink down deep so that the the dust and the dreariness of life begins to fade away and in its place springs renewed worship of Christ. Through faith, Jesus unites His people with Himself. And there's nothing better. That brings us to one final truth for this Resurrection Sunday. This time from verse 26. By grace, Jesus secures His people to the end. By grace, Jesus secures His people to the end. At this point in the conversation, Jesus anticipates not only the raising of Lazarus, but also the effects of His own resurrection. Notice the certainty the absoluteness of Jesus' words in verse 26. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Now, what does Jesus mean here? Is He saying that believers will never experience physical death? No. He's actually saying something much greater than that. But to see Jesus' point... You have to start at verse 25 and follow His reasoning all the way through to the end. You see, Jesus is building a gospel argument at this point. One that's built on His own resurrection. But you've got to pay attention to see it. You have to work hard to see what Jesus is doing. It helps, I think, to break it down piece by piece. So let's follow the Savior for, for just a moment. Okay, Verse 25, Jesus is the resurrection. What does that mean? Well, Jesus tells us. It means that whoever believes in Him, though he die, yet shall he live. You see, Jesus is explaining Himself. This is what Jesus does through His Spirit. He raises dead sinners to new life. He resurrects them through the miracle of regeneration. That's what it means that Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is also the life. What does that mean? Again, Jesus tells us. It means that everyone who lives and believes in Him shall never die. The two verses explain one another. This is what Jesus promises to those who are united to Him by faith. Having raised His people to new life, Jesus will now keep them in that life forever. Jesus is the life. This is why throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about eternal life as the believer's present possession. Because the life Jesus gives His people, He gives it to them now, and no one can take it away. It's eternal life now, and one day it will be eternal life realized 
in the presence of God. Friends, this is the unshakable hope of the gospel. That those who are united to Christ can never be taken from Christ. It's this hope that sustained the saints of old. And it's this hope that will carry us through to the end. I may lose my house, my job, my reputation, my family, even my health. God doesn't promise that I'll keep any of those things. I may lose all of them. In fact, most Christians down through the ages have lost most of them. I'm not promised any of that. But I am promised that I will never lose the life that I have in Jesus Christ. That's the hope Jesus holds out to Martha and to you and to me here in John 11. And yet, even as we meditate on this Gospel hope, we are immediately hit with an objection. It's staring you right in the face. In fact, it's staring Jesus and Martha in the face in this very passage. The objection is death. Remember, friends, death is the consequence of sin. We experience death because this world, including our physical bodies, lie under sin's curse. So, in, ev- in, in some sense, every instance of death is an argument against the Gospel. Every instance of death is an argument against Jesus. Every time someone dies, there is this wicked voice cackling somewhere. So much for the resurrection and the life. So much for Jesus' Gospel argument. Do you, do you see the problem? Death. Physical death is the great enemy of hope. And understand, friends, we would have no answer for this enemy except for one thing. Luke 24, 6. He is not here, but He is risen. That's the end of Jesus' argument. Jesus' resurrection secures forever our hope before God. Everyone who lives and believes in Jesus shall never die because Christ can never die again. Romans 6.9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. Jesus wants you to think and make the application. If death no longer has dominion over Jesus, then death also has no dominion over those who are united to Jesus. This is what Jesus has been driving at in the entire conversation with Martha. This is the end goal that He wants her to see. We are alive in Jesus by faith, and therefore we who live and believe in the resurrected Christ shall never die because Christ can never die. That is incredible hope, brothers and sisters. That is an unshakable hope even. I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to make one application here of this point. Just think for a moment. What could this world possibly throw at you that could shake this hope? Nothing. Nothing. The worst they can do is kill you. And that's the worst they can do. And will rise again with Christ. There is nothing this world can do. The Christian who understands that his or her security in the resurrected Christ cannot be shaken, the Christian who understands that truth is a believer who causes the forces of darkness to tremble and to quake. That kind of believer strikes fear in the heart of the evil one. Because the evil one knows, I have nothing against him. I have nothing against her. Not because that individual Christian is so powerful in himself, but because Christ's resurrection arms that Christian with an unshakable hope. Take my life. I'll get it again. 
Oh, for God to raise up here at Midtown Baptist Church a whole host of believers who embrace the gospel confidence that is theirs in the resurrected Christ. It stretches my mind to think of all that a band of such Christians might do for the glory of Christ. Armed with the resurrection, nothing would strike fear in our hearts. Not because we're so great, but because Christ lives and can never die again. Oh, for God to raise up people like that and to do it here and to do it in my heart and in yours. And the foundation of it all is the flesh and blood, historical, physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Everyone who lives and believes in Jesus shall never die because Christ can never die again. By grace, by grace, nothing but sheer grace, Jesus secures His people to the end. And so, the Lord Jesus brings us back to the question that began our time together. The end of verse 26. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that whoever trusts in Him, though He die, yet shall He live? Do you believe that because Jesus is alive, everyone who believes in Him shall never die? Friends, that is the question that defines and determines the course of life. That is the question that reveals the grand reality of all things. Do you believe this? Martha, for her part, gives us the right answer, the faithful answer. Look at verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Empowered by grace, Martha makes the good confession. She believes Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior who alone has come to atone for sin and bring His people to God. And my prayer this morning is that we too, by God's grace, might offer that good confession. And having trusted in Christ, we might hold fast to the glorious good news of Resurrection Sunday. He is risen, brothers and sisters. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray.